Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning, let me see how good it is to be here. Known Josh and Carrie for some time. Carrie's parents are even longer. And uh, it is good to be reunited with them, to be here. And you have two of your church members that are very dear friends, Andy and Janet McClurg. I baptized Janet in 1986. I was their pastor in Chicago, performed their wedding. They're among our dearest friends and been staying with them, and it's wonderful to be reunited with them again. You are blessed to have them, as you know. And others from Southern Seminary, uh, the Diffies, Toby Jennings, others that have come from Southern where I teach. And um, so it's, it's encouraging to see the influence uh, that they have among you and at Grand Canyon and what God is doing in this church. And seeing your uh, announcement up here about uh, the Sunday in June, when my boss, Dr. Moeller, will be here, uh, Dr. Russell Moore, who used to be my immediate boss when he was at Southern Seminary, and the others who are going to be here, I mean, if you're, these names don't resonate with you, you need to remember that when they speak, like at a college or a seminary, people will drive hundreds of miles to hear them, any one of them. You're going to have like four of them here on a Sunday morning, right, or a weekend before the convention, so don't miss that. Uh, if you don't recognize those names, you don't yet recognize what a great opportunity it is to have. Uh, because Southern Baptist Convention will be uh, in town uh, and uh, starting the next day. And so uh, uh, these men will be in town and will be speaking here. And what an opportunity. So do not miss that. Well, we have a wonderful promise in Romans 8.31 where the Bible says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know whether God is for you or not? That's a very important question when you consider the alternatives of God being for you or God being against you. If, for example, you want to get married and nothing ever works out, does that mean God is against you? But if you marry the person of your dreams, does that mean God is for you? But what then if the marriage breaks apart? Does that mean God is against you? What if you're unable to have children? Does that mean God is against you? What if you have many wonderful children? Does that mean God is for you? What if tragedy strikes those children? Does that then mean God is now against you? If you lose your job, you can't get a job. Does that mean God is against you? And what if you have unprecedented job success? Does that mean God is for you? What if you're always having money trouble? Does that mean God is against you? And what if you win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? Does that mean God is for you? Well, in the final analysis, nothing I've mentioned here is any indication necessarily one way or the other. For all the bad things I've mentioned here have happened to those that God is for. And all the good things I've mentioned here have happened to those God is dead set against. How then do we know whether God is for us? Well, ultimately, as believers in Christ, we know that God is for us because of what the Bible says He has done for us. As believers in Christ, we know that God is for us because of what the Bible says God has done for us, not because of changing circumstances. Rather, it is the unchanging truth of the Word of God. My text this morning has two sentences in this short verse. Romans 8.31, the first sentence says, What then shall we say to these things? Second sentence begins with, If God is for us, who can be against us? The word if that begins the second sentence is very important. Being a seminary professor, you know I'm duty-bound to mention Greek at least one time while I'm here, right? But it makes a huge difference in this case because when the New Testament was written, the Greek language in which it was written had several different words all translated if in English. It's sort of like many of us have heard that the Eskimos have some 16 different kinds of words for snow right? There's one word for heavy, wet snow. There's another word for dry, powdery snow. They have 16 different words for snow. Well, 
the Greeks had like three or four different words all translated if. In English, we have to sort of compensate for that by the context. For example, a man might say, at least back where I'm from, I'm going fishing tomorrow if it doesn't rain. Well, we understand he might or he might not. It's going to depend on the circumstances. But another man might say, I'm going fishing tomorrow if the sun comes up. Well, both of them used the word if, but in one case it was iffy. The other case, he was absolutely certain that he's going fishing, but they used the word if. Well, in this case, the word if is more like that latter one. We can almost translate it as sense. God is for us. Paul is convinced that God is for his people. But what convinced Paul? Well, if you go back to the last two words of the previous sentence, notice as it says, what then shall we say to these things? And you can almost see the Apostle Paul stroke his chin at this point. Hmm. What do we say to these things? What do we say to these things? What are these things? Well, it's the things he's just been talking about. The things in the previous paragraph are the things, in one sense, it's the whole book of Romans up to this point. But in the immediate context, it's the things he's just been talking about. Those were the things that convinced the Apostle Paul and ought to convince us as believers in Christ that God is for us. What are these things? Well, first of all, verses 26 and 27, we know that God is for us because the Holy Spirit he gives to us when we come to Christ prays for us. We don't know what to pray. Look at that. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He, that's God the Father, who searches hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit dwelling in believers is, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. (coughs) Excuse me. In those times when you don't know what to pray. You want to pray. You know you need to pray. You know it's important to pray in this case, but you don't know what to pray. The options are too confusing to you. It's not evident which is right, which is best. The Holy Spirit's praying for you. Maybe even in those moments when you can't pray. You ever been there? Your heart is so heavy like lead in your chest. All you can do is just sort of cast yourself across the bed and just sort of groan Godwardly. Oh God, is all you can say. He's praying for you. Or maybe you can't pray because you are literally in so much pain. Or you're so heavily sedated or medicated after surgery or because of pain that you're dealing with, you you literally can't put two words together in your mind and pray. You've never needed prayer more. It's never been more important for you to pray. And you can't pray. God is not in heaven wringing his hands saying, well, bless her heart. Bless his heart. What am I going to do? If they could utter some little prayer, I'd have something to work with, but I can't do anything because he can't pray. She can't pray. No, no. In those times, you most desperately need prayer. And you can't pray. You don't know what to pray. It says the Spirit Himself, emphasizing that the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Those aren't the groans of the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the Godward groans of the Christian. Maybe you're hardly even conscious and you're groaning, but it's a Godward groan without words even, just groaning Godwardly. And the Holy Spirit encodes upon those groans the very will of God. And the Apostle Paul says, you know what? If God will do that for me, if he'll pray for me when I don't know what to pray, if he'll pray for me when I can't pray, but I've never needed prayer more, if God will do that for me, God is for me. That's one of the things that makes Paul say, God is for me. That's not the only thing here. The very next verse is one of the most famous in the Bible. The very famous Romans eight twenty eight convinced Paul and ought to convince us that God is for us. But notice how it begins. Verse 28, and we know. You ever noticed that before in Romans 8, 28? And we know 
that for those who love God, not for everyone, for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. Not for everyone, but for those who are called according to his purpose. Incidentally, as somewhat of an aside here, it's been my observation that Christians seem to be more and more reluctant to offer Romans 8.28 as comfort to people. And I think it's because we've all seen people sort of flippantly throw Romans 8.28 out to hurting people insensitively. You don't give Romans 8.28 to people when they're on the raw edge of pain. Romans 8.28 is when people have come to the place they're sincerely searching for answers. You don't give Romans 8.28 when their fist is raised in rage against God. They're angry at God. Why did you let this happen? That's not when you try to answer why. It's when their hand is open. Oh God, why? That's when we have the precious promise of Romans 8.28. And we don't want to abandon that. We don't want to use it insensitively, but we don't want to give it up. But what is often neglected is the very first part of this famous verse. We know, and we know that for those who love God, He's causing all things to work together for our ultimate good and His glory. How do we know that? Have you ever associated this famous verse with the two verses right above it we just looked at? When do we apply Romans 8.28? The worst times in our lives, right? In those times where we don't know why this has happened. It gives us hope there is a purpose. There seems to be no purpose. It makes no sense for this to happen. The only comfort is that God is in control. He is not asleep. There is a reason for this, though I may never see it in this world. It is not worthless. It's not useless. He does have a purpose. In the hardest times in our lives, that's when we cling to Romans 8.28. How do we know in those times? How do we know that he's causing all things to work together for good? Because of what we just saw. Though that's when the Holy Spirit's praying for you. Remember? That's when the Holy Spirit's praying for you. In the worst times in your life, when you need prayer and you can't pray. You need prayer, you don't know what to pray. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Encoding upon our Godward groans the very will of God, we're told here. As though the Holy Spirit could pray any other way, but pray in accordance with the will of God. And what percentage of the prayers of the Holy Spirit do you think are answered? I would imagine it's pretty close to the percentage of the prayers of Jesus that are answered, don't you? And so we have that great assurance in the worst moments of our lives. That's when the Holy Spirit is praying for us. And His prayers are always answered. That's how we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Not for everybody, but for those who love Him who are called according to His purpose. And notice as it says, all things here, everything in the life of a Christian, even those things which are evil, work together in the hands of an almighty God who performs a divine alchemy so that the final outcome is gold, our glory, his good. All things, it says. Have you ever come across the Old Testament equivalent of Romans 8, 28? It's Psalm 119.91, which says, for all things are your servants, all things. Martin Luther said, all things, even the devil. Yes, he's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's on God's chain. And as the book of Job tells us, tells us, no matter what God allows Satan to do, it may be unspeakably horrible. He can't touch us apart from the will of God. All things, even those things which are pure evil. <clears throat> this verse is not calling on us to put on rose-colored glasses and see things as good that are evil. There are some things that are pure evil. This verse is not calling us to look for the silver lining in every cloud because some clouds don't have silver linings. This is telling us that there are some things in your life and you say, God, this is pure evil. There is no good in it whatsoever. It is pure evil. And God says, Amen. But the point of the text is God is so great. He can take things that are pure evil. And work them together with other things in his almighty hand so that the final outcome is our ultimate good and his glory. You take too much sodium, it will kill you. You take chloride, it will kill you. You work them together. And in proper amounts, salt is good and useful. 
God can take things that are otherwise horrible and work them together in his almighty hands, performing a divine alchemy that the final outcome is gold, our ultimate good, and for his glory. And he can do this with every single thing, even things which in and of themselves are evil. But the point is for a Christian, nothing in the life of a Christian can be evaluated by itself. By itself, it may be pure evil, but nothing in the life of a Christian exists by itself. Because God calls us all things to work together with other things in His hands. You can't evaluate any event, any experience, any one thing in your life by itself. Because sooner or later, there are going to be divine fingerprints on that thing. And He's going to work it together in unseen ways for our ultimate good and for His glory. So that the day will come most likely in another world, we are called to believe, and Christians can believe, but only Christians can believe this. And only Christians can believe this by faith, not by sight. And sometimes we believe this with clenched teeth and with tears in our eyes. But Christians can say, in all things, if I knew everything God knew, And I had God's heart. That's also very important. I would have allowed everything in my life that God has allowed. Only a Christian can say that. Only a Christian can say that by faith. Only a Christian can say that with sometimes with clenched teeth and tears in our eyes. But the Bible calls us to that reality and Christians cling to that. That in everything that ever happens, it's not purposeless. It's not useless. God is in control. So that even in the worst things that ever happened to us, we can say, if I knew everything God knew and I had God's heart, the day will come when I will bless God for allowing that. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? With a congregation of this size, if we had the time and the transparency... For testimonies about this, I'm sure there are people in this room that would testify things that somebody should be put in prison for, or worse. But Paul is calling Christians here to say, if we knew everything God knew, we would have allowed everything God has allowed. Now I want to remind you who it was who wrote these words. The man who just said this, tells us in another place he had been beaten for the gospel more times than he could remember. How many times have you been beaten for the sake of the gospel? The man who wrote this said, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews. 195 times he felt a leather whip across his back for the gospel. How many lashes have you felt? Once he said, I was stoned and left for dead. That was at Lystra. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out of town. He may have been dead, but he, God raised him up and he went back into town. How many times have you been stoned and left for dead for the sake of the gospel? He said, I've been in danger from my own countrymen who tried to kill me. I've been in danger from the Gentiles who tried to kill me. I've spent a whole night and day in the water thinking I was going to drown. I've been in danger in cities. I've been in danger in the countryside. And he, he goes on and on. A man who has suffered far more than any of us. This is the man who says, God causes all things to work together for our ultimate good and for his glory. Because this is also the man, as I mentioned in the last hour, to whom God gave the ultimate human experience. He tells us in 2 Corinthians that there was a time, and he said, I I don't know if I was in my body or not, but God allowed me to go to heaven. The ultimate human experience. I saw how it all ends up with my eyes. You're called to believe this by faith, but I saw it with my eyes. How it all ends up, how it all comes to a conclusion, how glorious it is, all of these things. And I am telling you that the sufferings of this present time, and I have suffered far more than any of you, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us. I have seen it. And I'm calling you to believe it. And the Holy Spirit allows Christians to believe that even about the worst things that have ever happened to them. Paul says, if God will do that, 
If God will take the worst things that have ever happened to me, everything that's ever happened to me, and not just neutralize it so I can look forward to a day when there's no more pain. He won't hurt me anymore at last. The memory is erased. It won't hurt me anymore. No, no, it's better than that. He says, he will turn it into gold. I will bless God forever because he will bless me forever through the worst things that have ever happened to me. It's one thing to say that about things in the past where you've kind of lived long enough to see the good in them. Until about seven years ago, I would have said to you that the worst thing that ever happened to me was in the first pastorate that I had after seminary. I became pastor of a little country church where I was the 17th pastor in 21 years. A statistic, Josh, it tells me a million times more today than when I was 25. And we were there 15 months, which is almost a record. And my wife and I endured five hospitalizations and three surgeries from the stress of that 15 months. Both of us were told, you can never be parents. But he delivered us from that and took us to the suburbs of Chicago, where I pastored a church for 15 years. That's where met, baptized Janet, married Andy and Janet, and the Lord turned our mourning into dancing giving us 15 wonderful years there at that church. And there came a time where I, I, I began to say, I think I know now why God allowed us to go through the suffering of that horrible 15 months. God was preparing us to serve this wonderful church. They were already looking for a pastor when I went to this little church, this little country church. But God used a pressure cooker 15 months, got us ready, ready in a hurry, to bless us for 15 years in this other situation. That's what I thought until I began teaching in a theological seminary. And now I look out every day on the faces of young men who are pastoring that same church, if you know what I mean. And it makes a world of difference to say, brother, I have been there. And so the greatest privilege of my life now, preparing future missionaries and pastors and worship leaders and biblical counselors, it makes a world of difference to say I have been there. So sometimes we can go through something awful, but live long enough to say, now I think I understand why years ago I went through that. And it's fairly simple to look into the future and say, yes, I'm sure whatever happens to me out there will be for God's glory and my ultimate good. You know how I can say that? Because I haven't experienced the pain of the future yet. But you know what's really hard for me? It's to believe Romans 8, 28 is true today. Because there are about 10 things in my life right now, if I could snap my fingers, I would remove them from my life today. And I pray God will do that, and He doesn't. But this verse is calling me to believe that God causes all things in my life today to work for my ultimate good and for His glory. And Paul says, if God will do that, though, if He'll take everything that's ever happened to me, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, and not just neutralize them so I can look forward to a day when they won't hurt me anymore, no, He is going to bless me forever and ever through these things. If he will do that for me, God is for me. But it gets even better than that. For the next verse begins another thing, a chain of things actually, that causes Paul to say, if God will do that, God is for us. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you are in Christ, this verse tells us that God foreknew you. And it means more than he just knew about you in advance, or he knew in advance decisions you would make. Rather, it's a more intimate word than that. We could almost translate it as God foreloved you. He knew everything about you. He knew every decision you would make. He knew every sin you would commit. And he loved you anyway. And he pretested you, it says, 
to be conformed to the image of his son. He has predestined all those in Christ to be made like Jesus Christ, not like him in his divinity. We're not going to be little gods as our Mormon friends believe. Rather, it says we will be made like him in his sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting, radiating the glory of God forever and ever through every cell and pore of our bodies. Now, if it said we were predestined to be made like angels, we would have rejoiced forever. In fact, that seems to be the common understanding that somehow the culture largely believes that when people die, everyone goes to heaven, the culture largely believes. The only people who won't go there are the people nobody wants to be there. You know, Hitler won't be there, Osama bin Laden won't be there, but basically everybody else will be there and all they have to do to get there is die. But somehow, when people get to heaven, they morph into angels. You notice that? When it shows people in heaven, they've got angels' wings, so forth, sort of like Clarence, you know, finally gets from Jimmy Stewart his angels' wings, and it's a wonderful life. He's here, down here trying to get his angels' wings. Well, not if you're a human. You're predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, not an angel. But if it were an angel, we would have been astonished forever to be made creatures that glorious. Twice in the book of Revelation, angels appear to the apostle John, and he falls on his face and worships them. Now, John knew better than that. John had a pretty good theology, don't you think? He had, especially by this point in his life, he knew better than to worship angels. You only worship God. But when angels actually appeared to him, even in a 25-watt bulb version of glory, he couldn't help himself. He fell on his face and worshiped. And both times he had to say, don't do that. Worship God. And I'm sure as he got up, he said, I I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. You're you're too glorious. You're too glorious. If we were going to be made creatures like that, that would astonish even the apostle John, We would have rejoiced forever, but folks, it's better than that. We have been predestined to become conformed according to the image of His Son. The Bible says, It has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. But that's not all. For those whom He predestined, it says, These He also called through the gospel with a call that awakened the spiritually dead. He called you. Just like when he walked into the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. If he hadn't said Lazarus, they all would have come forth. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Just like he called me that Thursday night when I was nine years old. Through the gospel. Though he had called me through the gospel every time I'd ever heard the gospel. is all who were called to him every time the gospel goes forth. But that night, what theologians call the special call. Through the gospel, I heard him calling me as he'd never called me before. In a way, he didn't call the boys on my right and on my left that night. He called me unmistakably. He made Jesus irresistibly beautiful to me. And the first thing I freely wanted to do when he called me like that is run to Christ. And he had no obligation to do so. I added nothing to the team. He didn't need me. But in his grace, he called me. But it's better than that. Where it goes on to say, for those whom he called, these he also justified. Justified, which is far more than if we may say the mere forgiveness of sins. As though we could say the mere forgiveness of every sin we have ever committed. Because the mere forgiveness of every sin you ever committed only brings you to zero, to, to neutral. Do you realize if you had never sinned in your life, you couldn't go to heaven? Because you have to have more to go to heaven than no sin. But the Bible says we not only have no sin, we have infinite sin. Imagine this microphone is the center point of a line that extends infinitely in this direction. Minus one, minus two, minus three to infinity. And here's plus one, plus two, plus three to infinity. Jonathan Edwards famously put it when he said, Our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. And he knew that because he knew that we never have any word, deed, thought, or motive that isn't affected to some degree by sin. Someone put it this way, if sin were blue, everything we ever said or did or thought, every motive would be some shade of blue. Some would be a dark navy blue. Some would be a light blue. But every word, deed, thought, motive would be some shade of blue even when we're not aware of it. Even the best, most self-sacrificing deeds in our lives are saturated by sin. 
When we get up in the middle of the night to help a sick child, we help some stranger on the side of the road. Even then there is sin, even if we're not aware of it. There's some selfishness in that. It may be nothing more than, well, I hope my spouse appreciates this, or I hope someone sees me do this, or, well, I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do it. There's some sense of selfishness, even in our most self-sacrificing moments, even if we're not aware of it. So that even in those moments when we say, this is righteousness, this is unrighteousness, and we choose righteousness, good, that's what we ought to do. God is pleased in some sense. When we say this is obedience and this is disobedience, and we choose obedience, good, in some sense God is pleased, that's right. But what does the Bible say about this? The Bible says even our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. We know our sins are filthy rags, but the Bible says even our righteousnesses, when we do what is right, we don't do it perfectly. Perfectly pure in our motives, our deeds, our thoughts. There is some degree of sin in all these things. Which is why Edwards could say our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite because every moment we're sinning, which to some degree is every moment, we're also breaking the greatest of all commandments which is to love God with all your heart, right? All your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And whenever we are sinning, which is every every moment, at that moment we're also breaking the greatest of all commandments. So every sin is a double sin. That's why Edward said our sins are infinite upon infinite and multiplied by infinite. But if you'd never sinned in your life, that just brings you to zero. We must have more than no sin to go to heaven, and we have infinite sin. But if we had no sin, we still need perfect righteousness, and we have none. But there was a man. A man who came from heaven. A man who lived 33 years of perfect righteousness. Who never once broke the law of God. Who every moment kept the law of God. Who every second of his life loved God with all his heart, all his soul all his mind, all his strength, his neighbor as himself. And not once in 33 years did he ever, after the relentless accusations and false charges of his enemies, finally get fed up and just sort of lose it for a moment, but get it under control again. Not for one second. And therefore, by his obedience and sinlessness, Jesus earned heaven. So salvation by works... Oh, you bet it is, but not yours. Someone had to work for your salvation, and Jesus worked 33 years of perfect righteousness, and that qualified him to be a substitute for lawbreakers like us. And on the cross, he willingly offered himself as a substitute, and he received the wrath of God, and we know that God accepted that because God raised him from the dead and ascended him to heaven from which someday he will come as judge and king over all And that's what it means to be justified. As this great exchange on the cross took place, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we, we the infinite sinners, might be zero, might be neutral. No, it says that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we believe into Christ, and that's what faith means, we believe into Christ. We don't just believe things about Jesus. You've heard of being united with Christ by faith. That happens, we believe into Jesus. And when we do, we get credit for having lived the life of Jesus. When we are justified, God looks upon you as though you healed all those people. God looks upon you as though you spoke the words of Jesus. God looks upon you and gives you credit for having the perfectly pure heart of Christ. He looks upon you as though you had the perfectly pure mind of Christ forever. And on the cross, Jesus got credit for having lived my life. And you know what my life got? The perfectly pure Son of God? The atomic bomb of the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul says, if God will do that, if God will take my life, place it upon Christ, and give me credit for the life of Jesus, God is for me. But folks, it's even better than that. For whom he justified, it says, these he also glorified. Notice his past tense there. It's done in the mind of God. It's future to our experience. In the mind of God, it's done. It's finished. Made like Christ forever and ever. So the Apostle Paul says, what do we say to these things? 
He gives me the Holy Spirit who prays for me when I can't pray. I don't know what to pray. He prays for me, always in accordance with the will of God, which is always answered by the, when the Holy Spirit prays. And He takes everything that ever happens to me, everything, even the worst things that have ever happened to me, and He doesn't just neutralize them so that someday the pain will stop. No, He will bless me forever and ever so that for the worst things that have ever happened to me, I will thank God and bless God because forever and ever He will reward me for those things. And then before the foundation of the world, knowing everything about me, every sin I would ever commit, He set His love on me anyway. And predestined me, me, to be like Jesus. And then called me when I was his enemy. Called me when I was dead in trespasses and sins. And he called me to himself with this unmistakable call to life. And then gave me credit for having lived the life of Jesus. And is guaranteed that I will be like Jesus forever and ever. What shall we say to these things? Oh, we could say so much to these things. But Paul says, if nothing else, we can say these things mean God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against it? Well, you might hear this and think, okay, sounds great on a Sunday morning. This is Sunday morning. This is church. This is a sermon. We sort of hear these kind of things. We're used to this. It's inspirational. This is good stuff. But you know what? If this is true, why is my life so stinking hard? Sort of reminds me of the title of a devotional book for junior high kids. If God is for me, why can't I get my locker open? I've got to go home this afternoon. Life is hard when I go home. I've got to go to work tomorrow. Life is hard when I go to work. If God is for me like this passage is talking about, why is my life so stinking hard? Our lives are hard because we do have forces against us. Paul doesn't say if God is for us, nothing is against us. The Bible tells us, in fact, the whole world is against us. Jesus said, you follow me, you're going to have the whole world against you. The world hated me, so the world will hate those who follow me. And with every 24-hour news cycle, it seems like it gets harder and harder to follow Christ. It seems like more and more we are swimming upstream against the secular culture of this world. And the world is less and less a place every day conducive to being a follower of Jesus Christ. The world makes it hard to follow Jesus. The Bible makes it clear that the flesh is against us. Though we are declared righteous, we are right with God. There is still within us, as long as we are in these bodies... There is something within us that still finds sin attractive, still finds temptation appealing. That's what the Bible calls the flesh, this this susceptibility to sin, to still find sin attractive. And when we sin, we want sin at that moment more than we want righteousness. And we make choices that make life hard, hard in our relationships. We make choices that might leave scars on our bodies and scars on our relationships And the Bible says sometimes God, because He loves us as His children, will discipline us for those sinful choices. And that can make life harder. And Paul puts it this way in Romans. He said, the Spirit wars against the flesh within you and the flesh against the Spirit. So you don't always do what you want. The Spirit within you says, God, change me right now. I never want to sin again. I am ready right now. Change me thoroughly. I never sin again. And yet we still live in a body where there's active within us this principle that finds sin attractive and temptation appealing. And that's going to make life hard because of this sin factory that beats in our chest. And the devil makes life hard for us. He made life harder for Job. He's going to make life harder for us. But what's going on here when Paul says, if God is for us, who is against us, was summarized by the late James Montgomery Boyce this way. It's as though the Apostle Paul has a set of old-fashioned scales here. And on this side, he's throwing peanuts. Who is against you? Well, the whole world is against me, Paul. All right, put that peanut there, plunk. Anything else? Yeah, this sin factory that beats in my chest sure works against me. All right, put that over there, plunk. Anything else? Well, the devil is sure against me, plunk. Anything else? Well, 
I, I think my boss is against me. My teachers are against me. Okay, but they're there. Plunk, plunk. And then it's as though the Apostle Paul throws the anvil of God on the other side. Boom. If God is for us, who are, who's against us? Yes, the world, the flesh, the devil, your boss, your teachers, they may be against you, but who are they if God is for us? So ultimately what he's saying here is that nothing or no one can thwart God's eternal plan for his people. God is for us in the sense that nothing or no one can thwart God's eternal plan for his people. He is predestined from before the foundation of the world that all those in Christ will be made like Christ. And in his mind, they are glorified. It is done. And nothing and no one can thwart it. Your place in heaven is secure if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. Because if you could, you would. You would have already lost it. If you could lose it. But once made alive in Christ, you never lose that life. He permits suffering, but he has decreed glory. And nothing and no one can thwart the will of God in this case. Theologians will refer sometimes to the will of God sometimes as the permissive will of God. And the decretive will of God. With the permissive will of God, he permits violations of his will. For example, here's the will of God, right? You shall not bear false witness. That's God's will, isn't it? That's one of the Ten Commandments. It's God's will. You shall not bear false witness. Does he permit you to bear false witness? Yeah, we've all done it. Not without responsibility, but he allows violations of his will that we call the permissive will. But here's the will of God too. Let there be light. Could there not have been light? No. Why? God decreed that there be light. God has decreed for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. To become conformed to the image of his son. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And these whom he called, these whom he predestined, these he also called. These whom he called, these he also justified. These whom he justified, these he also glorified. When God is for you, nothing and no one can thwart his eternal plan for you. You may have fallen under false teaching in the past. But those false teachers cannot decree that you lose your salvation. You may have left some religious group that now condemns you. There is no group, no religious organization that can decree you lose your salvation. And either unbelieving parents, nor an unbelieving spouse, nor an unbelieving boss, nor an unbelieving teacher, nor any other unbeliever in your life can so constrict you and confine you from following Christ like you want to do that would ever cause him to reject you. And my brother or sister, when it says, if God is for us, who is against us? The who includes you. You did not earn your way into the grace of God. And listen carefully when I say you cannot sin your way out. Now anyone who hears that and understands it to mean that once you profess faith in Christ, you can live the way you want and go to heaven is probably a stranger to grace in the first place. Rather, I say that as a pastor of 24 years to people of a tender conscience who are terrified that though they want Christ more than anything and they desire to live like Christ as perfectly as possible because of some heinous sin in their past, because of their inability to break some particular sinful habit, ultimately the patience of God would be exhausted and finally He will slam the door in their face because of that sin. And they're terrified of that. But they want God in His heaven more than anything. And they wish God would give them a holy and perfect life right now. But they're terrified because of their failures. God will reject them. My brother, sister, you did not get into the grace of God by your doing good. He will not kick you out because of your failures. If God is for you, who is against us? Let me close this 
at least a few practical words here. First of all, I want to call your attention to Paul's example here as one we need to follow. I love what he did. I need to do this so much more often. How we need to learn to reason out and rest upon what the Bible says is true. Regardless of sight or circumstances or feelings, notice what he did. He says, all right, he gives the Holy Spirit to me who prays for me when I can't pray. I, maybe I'm stoned and left for dead and I can't pray at all. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not even conscious. He prays for me. And he takes the worst things that have ever happened to me. Everything that ever happens to me. and doesn't just neutralize them so that eternally it doesn't hurt anymore. He blesses me forever through everything, even bad things that happen to me. And before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin I would ever commit in my life, he loved me anyway. And predestined me, not just to make it to heaven, not just to be like an angel. He predestined me to be like Christ. And though I was his enemy and hated him, I was dead in trespasses and sins. He called me through the gospel. Making Jesus irresistibly beautiful to me. And then he gave me credit for having lived the life of Jesus. And is ensured that I will be like Christ forever and ever. That is the truth. Now what do I reason out and rest upon from that? Well here's one thing. That tells me God is for me. And if God is for me, who is against me? Brothers, we need to follow that example. I know what you feel right now, but what is the truth? I know what you think. What is the truth? I know what the circumstances are telling you in your life. What is the truth? What does the Bible say is the truth? Will you go by your feelings or your circumstances, or will you reaffirm and rest upon the truth? When you feel guilty and condemned by God and hopeless, what is the truth? The truth is the first verse in this passage. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the truth. When you feel as though God cannot use you, you are worthless to the kingdom of God. What is the truth? Over and over and over, we need to, every day I need to learn this. What is the truth? What is the truth? What is the truth? I see this, but what is the truth? I feel this. What is the truth? The circumstances are saying this. What is the truth? And let's leave with this truth for one thing. Truth is, if God is for us, who is against us? Second, when God is for you, He is for you forever. He's for you forever. If He has been for you since before the foundation of the world, knowing every sin you would ever commit, He is for you forever. So don't doubt His love. Several years ago, I was reading a book called Communion with God by the greatest of the Puritan theologians, John Owen. I was reading long and nothing really had moved me powerfully. It was on page 11, I think, maybe page 13, but I can still see it on the kind of the bottom of the page there. When I read one sentence and tears began to flow just like you'd turn on a light switch. Here was that sentence. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father. The greatest unkindness you can do to him is, what do you think he's going to say? The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. He gives you the Holy Spirit who prays for you when you can't pray? And you most desperately need prayer, but you can't. He prays for you. You don't know what to pray. And He takes everything that ever happens to you, even the worst things that ever happen to you, and it doesn't just neutralize the pain someday. He blesses you forever and ever and ever for everything that ever happens to you. And knowing all about you from the foundation of the world and every sin and every rebellion against Him... He loved you anyway and predestined you to be like Jesus and called you when he did not need you and had no obligation to call you and gives you credit for having the life, living the life of Jesus and is guaranteed to make you like Jesus forever and ever. And you wonder if he loves you. What would be a greater proof? Letting you in the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes? That would convince you of the love of God more than these things? 
So don't doubt his love. And lastly, the question obviously to present itself is this, is God for you? Is God for you? He is for all who have come to Christ. And so if you believe humbly, tremblingly, yes, I do believe I've come to Christ. I do want Christ more than anything. I want to be saved, to be right with God, to know Him and be with Him forever. I want that more than anything, despite those times when I don't act like it or think it. But all things told, day in and day out, I want nothing more than that. And I cling to Christ. Then realize and reaffirm and be ravished by the truth to be able to say, God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. And if you're unsure if God is for you, be sure that He is for all who will come to Him. Regardless of who you are or what you've done, if you will come to Christ, He will be for you from this moment and forever. But if you haven't come to Christ, Realize that at this moment, God stands against you. And you may look around this room and say, well, I wouldn't trade lives with anyone here. It's true, I'm not a follower of Christ, but I've got a better job, better income, better situation than anybody I can see in this room. I'm okay. Someday you will realize to your horror when you stand before Him that you have made God your enemy. And you realize that God is against you forever. And if God is against you, who can be for you? But if you will come to Christ, you can be sure that God is for you. Regardless of whether you get the spouse you want, or the house you want, or the children you want, or the job you want, or the education you want, or the income you want, Regardless of how those things turn out, come to Christ and you get God. And if God is for you, who is against you? Let's pray.